and the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. The book of Job is one of my favourite books in the Bible. I love it. Uh, except maybe for chapter 42, which I struggle with. Uh, so I need to talk about it a little bit. Um, the book of Job is part of a group of books in the uh, Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature. These include Proverbs, clearly, uh, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, some of the Psalms, the book of Job, and some other bits and pieces. These books are based, unlike the prophets, which are about divine revelation, and the history books, which are about a history of God's interaction with people, these books are based on the writer's observation of life. Uh, and so Proverbs is probably the most conservative of them, and they just have nice, lots of nice little Proverbs, Fakatoki, little sayings that we can live by. Most of the wisdom literature, however, is particularly around their observation of when the old answers no longer work, when evil and misfortune occurs with no apparent cause, when God doesn't seem to play by the rules anymore. What is the meaning of life when God is no longer playing by the rules and is, well, seemingly absent? One of the writers uh, that I read a long time ago on the wisdom literature uh, describes this as a change in God seems to occur. Human constancy is met with divine inconsistency, faithfulness with fickleness. Faced with this new situation, the believer struggles to grasp the meaning of the new face of God and to recapture this previous relationship of mutual trust. This religious quest to understand the experience of God-forsakenness. How do we live in relation to God and to each other when God doesn't seem to be playing fair? These books offer a variety of answers, and that's significant, because they invite us to hold lightly to all we think we know about God. So on these uncertain times with COVID-19, climate change and struggling churches, I can't think of a more important set of books. As we've heard over the last two Sundays, Job discovers that no answer is ever adequate because God is beyond our understanding. This week, Job is told that his crime was not that he questioned God or that he questioned the old formulas about God, but that he used those old formulas to question God. Basically, he said, you're supposed to reward me because I'm a just man, and instead I've had this calamity fall upon me, so I want to take you to court because you have not obeyed the rules. And God is saying, why do I have to obey the rules? You made up the rules, not me. I'm God. You shouldn't have judged me according to your rules. That's what's going on here. But those rules, that formula, provided the theology of much of the Old Testament and still were per pervasive in Jesus' time. To be honest, they still are today. How often do we hear people say, 
when something bad goes wrong in their lives, I wonder what I did that God is punishing me like this. What did I do that was so wrong? That question comes out of God rewards the righteous, God punishes the unrighteous. Exactly the theology that Job is writing against. Everyone knew that because God is moral and just, God rewards the moral and just with long life, many sons, health and wealth. And God punishes those who are immoral or unjust. We saw this in the conversation around the rich man's dialogue with Jesus about inheriting eternal life. When Jesus said, we saw that the wealthy were seen as rewarded by God and the poor and the sick as punished by God. To be honest, that is still taught today in too many churches. It is the basis of the prosperity gospel. So Jesus' comments about how hard it is for the rich to enter heaven shocked. Because his disciples believed that theology. And for Jesus to say, well actually it's going to be really hard for the rich to get into heaven. Counted everything that they believed about God. They couldn't get their heads around it. It still shocks in some quarters today. These were the old ways of seeing. These old ways of seeing God might even be seen at play in some of how Job is translated, particularly this last bit. So this last chapter is contested. There are lots of people who don't think it belongs, and for a long time. I'm on the fence now, but I didn't think this ending of Job didn't belong. Because in a way, it seems to go back and say, okay, at the end of it, God did reward Job because Job was righteous and he had twice as many sheep and cows and everything else before, and he had a whole bunch of new sons and daughters. So it just feels like having critiqued and uh, been saying this old way of understanding God doesn't hold then goes back and reinforces that old way. And one of the verses that's problematic in here is chapter 42, verse 6, which in the NRSV, just as Peter read, is translated, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And if we read that, we can think, well, that's Job despising himself because he questioned God and he questioned these old formulas and now he's repenting, just as his friends kept telling him he had to do. But this translation is disputed by many commentators and scholars. For a start, there is no myself in the Hebrew. The translators of the the King James Version and then down through that line of translations to the New Revised Standard Version have inserted a word in there to make it fit how they think it should read. Other translations that are offered include, I retract my words and repent of dust and ashes. So, Job is saying, I just got this all wrong and I will not even go down that road anymore. Or another is, I withdraw my case and am finally comforted. In one of the newer translations, the Common English Bible, which is the one I use for the uh, Gospel readings, uh, translates it, Therefore I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes. So more than letting go, Job finds comfort in the unknowing. 
comfort in simply knowing that God is. Job finishes with everything restored, which, as I've said, just felt wrong for me for most of the last 40 years, if we're honest. Um, but a couple of people have suggested some other ways of reading that, that well, maybe, maybe God was not going back to the old place. Maybe Job was simply comforted and now at ease with God. One of the commentaries talked about, I wonder what the conversation between Job and God looked like after that point. We're not told. But there's no reason to suggest that God and Job did not continue that conversation. And now that he is comforted and at ease with God, he courageously re-embraces life. He suddenly has, well he doesn't suddenly, but he has the courage to start again after all that has happened. And that wasn't a magic thing, like it just sounds like it was magic and he suddenly had all these extra sheep and cows and donkeys, twice the number he had at the beginning of the book, and children. But you and I know that there's some action needed before you get ten children. <laughs> and he had to engage in that. And that involved both being courageous enough to start again, but also a level of hope about what the future might hold. I mean, he had lost everything, all his children. To even begin again is, a, is an act of hope and courage. And God chooses to bless Job, not because God must or as a reward, but simply because, well... God can, because God is. So in light of that, I wonder in what ways we might be invited to be at ease with not knowing and still courageously embracing life. Now on other days, I'm going to stop there, but... The story from Mark is, well, it's a really important story. Because it comes at the end of Mark's central section. I've talked about this, well, this is the fourth time I've preached on this, which means I've been here for probably too long. Um, now I know why people kind of only stay for five to six years. They don't have to, they don't have to keep making up new sermons every three years. <coughs> Uh, this section, this story comes um, at the end of the central section, and the central section acts as a pivot. So we have the kind of first part, which lays out who Mark is. We have the central part, uh, which starts with the healing of a blind man who is brought to Jesus in chapter 8. And Jesus has a go at healing him. Um, and he says, can you see it? He says, well, I can see people, but they look like trees moving around, so he has to have another go. And then he can see properly. And he tells him to return to his home and not tell anyone. And then we have a whole section with um, Jesus, uh, built around Jesus three times, teaching about his death and resurrection and what that means. And then the disciples responding mostly entirely inappropriately to that. And then it finishes with uh, this story with the blind Bartimaeus, who is healed on the first go, and he follows so that's important. So let's just have a look at the section. So the first time that Jesus teaches about his death and resurrection, 
Uh, that leads to a heated conversation with Peter, because Peter says that should not happen, because that doesn't fit his understanding of how God works. We're back into Job again. God rewards the righteous and the, and the just with long life and many sons. He doesn't reward the Messiah with crucifixion. That is all wrong. And if the Messiah gets crucified, that's not good for Peter. So he's, he's not having a bar of that. And then the second time, uh, they're off on a walk and Jesus asks his disciples at the end, what were you talking about back there? And they go, uh, yeah, we were talking about which of us was the greatest. So their response to Jesus teaching about death and resurrection was, so which one of us is the most important? Again, still not getting what Jesus is talking about. And then uh, there's the transfiguration, and there's some other healings, and some tricky questions about divorce, and Jesus blessing some children. Uh, and then we have the two stories that we've looked at over the last two weeks. So the first was a rich man who comes and he says, well, he asks what he has to do to inherit eternal life. And at the end of the conversation, Jesus invites him to go sell all you have and give to the poor and come follow me. But the rich man can't because he has too many possessions and he leaves sad, dismayed. Which then leads to Jesus teaching about rich people and eyes of needles and camels. So just hold that story in your minds for a moment. And then Jesus again teaches about how he will be crucified and rise. And James and John ask for a favour as a response to that. And Jesus replies, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, they'd like to sit, sit on the seats of power, one on the left, one on the right. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because to be on Jesus' left and right was to be on his left and right at the crucifixion. And tradition tells us that at least James was martyred and maybe John. To which, all this time, Jesus and the disciples are coming closer to Jerusalem. When this set of stories begin, they are way up in the Galilee. This last story happens in Jericho. And Jericho is at the bottom of the hill. It's a big hill, but still the bottom of the hill. They then, when they leave Jericho, go up the road into Jerusalem. That is where the story is going. So as Jesus goes to Jericho, comes out of Jericho, we don't know what he does in Jericho, as he is leaving Jericho, so we know he's very close this blind man, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the first time this title is used in Mark's Gospel. And it's on the lips of an outcast. It will be used again as Jesus enters Jerusalem, or a version of it. And it will be mockingly alluded to on the title above Jesus' head at his crucifixion. Well, the crowd shush Bartimaeus. They, they, they don't want to draw attention to uh, what he's trying to say, but he will have none of it, and he calls out even louder. So Jesus calls him. Now, we often read this story as a healing story, but a number of people say 
it's first and foremost a calling story. There's a healing involved, but it's really a calling story. And Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Which is exactly the same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? James and John replied, we want the seats of power. Bartimaeus replies simply, I want to see. Unlike everything that has gone before in the central section, after he is able to see, he follows on the way, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to crucifixion. Now we just need to go back a little bit, because when the, when he, Jesus calls him, the crowd around him say, oh, uh, we got that wrong, okay, he's calling you now, so you can leap up and go and see him, and he leaps up and he throws off his cloak, and we often ignore that detail. His cloak was his one treasured item. It was the thing that kept him warm in winter. And he throws it off. Two stories before, the rich man was asked, go sell all you have and give the proceeds to the poor and come follow me. And he couldn't. Bartimaeus does. He throws away his one item, his one piece of treasure, the one thing that he owns apart from the clothes he's standing in, and he follows Jesus. He is the ideal follower, the ideal disciple. Not James, not John, not Peter, not the other disciples who are all struggling to get what Jesus is talking about. It is Bartimaeus who is the first true disciple in Mark's Gospel. He alone can see. The others are still blind, seeing people walking around like trees. Mark began his gospel with, Now is the time, here comes God's kingdom. Let that blow your mind and change your hearts and lives. And trust this good news. The rest of the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, which is what Mark's gospel is, is about the disciples struggling with all that is happening and having their minds blown. And it takes a while before they are reoriented to what Jesus is asking. It actually takes his death and resurrection. But Bartimaeus, well, he embraces it immediately because he's got a lot less to lose. It doesn't take so much to have his mind blown and to be reoriented. He lets go of all that he thought he knew and expected of God because that God was a punishing God. The God he encountered in Jesus was a loving, healing God. And he was much more interested in that God. And he found God in this Galilean rabbi. He becomes our model. So we have these two stories. Job, who was forced to let go of everything he thought he knew about God and to realize that God simply is and to be comforted in that. And we have Bartimaeus as a model for what a true disciple looks like. 
So what do these stories offer us in our uncertain and troubled times? In what ways are we like the disciples or even Job's friends, unhelpful friends, locked into old ways of thinking and unable to see what Jesus is on about? What does it mean for us to be like Bartimaeus, true disciples today? What are we being invited to leave behind? And where might we follow Jesus to? Some questions to ponder. So we'll spend a short moment pondering those in silence. And then Peter will lead us in the prayer.